It's Friday, April 8th, 2022. And for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is the Pennsylvania Legacies Podcast, and I'm Josh Rollerson. Like many rivers in coal country, the Little Connemaw carries a toxic legacy. That's the old mine opening. Once this stuff hits it, nothing really living in it. This river was designated unfixable. But life is returning and new directions have emerged. We don't want to forget our heritage. At the same time, we have to look forward. If we could do this here with the Little Connemaw, we can probably do it anywhere. The Wild and Scenic Film Festival on Tour returns to Pennsylvania this month with a cinematic celebration of the outdoors you can enjoy virtually or in person. It's sponsored by Peck and our affiliate, the Pennsylvania Organization for Watersheds and Rivers, Power, in partnership with the Laurel Highlands Conservation Landscape. Last year's festival was online only, but this year you can attend a live screening hosted by the Loyal Hanna Watershed Association in Ligonier. The evening's marquee event will be a showing of Philadelphia filmmaker Ben Kalina's new documentary about the Little Connemaw River in Cambria County and its transformation from a toxic remnant of southwestern Pennsylvania's industrial past into a haven for anglers, paddlers, and wildlife. We just heard the trailer for A River Reborn, and we're joined now by its director, Ben Kalina of Mangrove Media. Ben, welcome. Thanks, Josh. Nice to be here. Can we start off by uh, talking a little bit about you, your company, your background? You know, uh, what do you guys do? Why do you do it? Sure. Um, so I, I have a, a small production company uh, called Mangrove Media, but really it's, uh, it's kind of an umbrella for me to make films um, because I'm a documentary filmmaker. Uh, I'm also a professor at Drexel University of Film. And so what I do is I look for stories that interest me, which uh, often have to do with environmental issues, climate change, um, sort of the Venn diagram of uh, climate, economics, and society. Uh, and I try to uh, find stories that I find compelling uh, and then um, either turn those into documentaries or I often work with uh, organizations that have similar goals to try to tell stories that will help uh, bring attention to the work that they're doing. What do you view as the power of of documentary filmmaking for environmental advocacy specifically? Well, I think, uh, you know, maybe the, the most powerful facet of documentaries are their uh, <clears throat> ability to build empathy uh, between different groups of people. So in particular, between the, the viewer, the audience and the people who are in the in the film. Right. That's easier said than done sometimes with environmental or climate issues, because a lot of times you're talking about somewhat abstract concepts, right? Like air quality, water quality, um, environmental justice or equity. So you have to find stories that you can connect with and people can connect with. For me, that to some extent means transporting people uh, either to places that they haven't been, but finding ways to bring it back to things that they recognize and understand. And so it's almost like there's a, a time travel aspect to it. Um, and in some part, that's that's because a lot of the things that I'm particularly interested in are about uh, issues that will have a, a, you call it like a downstream or lag effect. And so how do you get people to understand things that they have to act on now, but which they may not actually see the benefits of that for some time. And so, I mean, as the case with the River Reborn, some films of mine have to do with problems that 
are visible now that were created a, a certain time ago, but where the benefits of fixing them are, are again off in the future. So uh, that's always kind of the trick with environmental issues. It's, it's there's you know that's part of the challenge in general with uh, solving problems that are environmental is is the sense of uh, sort of abstract quality of a lot of those problems and the the need to a sort of delayed gratification to solve them. Well, let's look at the film specifically. Um, how did you come by this story? Where does it fit into that sort of schematic you laid out of, of your concerns and interests as a filmmaker? So this this was a story that uh, was kind of brought to my my attention by a friend of mine, uh, David Mazur, who uh, is the executive director of Penn Environment. We talked and we've done some projects together, and, and uh, he told me about this the seven large discharges that were being addressed by the Foundation for Pennsylvania Watersheds and others. And it was a, a story that I hadn't really heard about before. I mean, I, I think like a lot of people who are engaged with environmental issues had thought about the coal industry and the legacy of the coal industry and, the, you know, in the need as part of our transition away from fossil fuels to move away from coal, but also being uh, in Pennsylvania, you know, it has this incredibly um, long, deep, complex, uh, history with coal. And it's been, you know, for a long time, a really important part of the fabric of the state and a lot of communities. And so when I heard about this story, I thought, well, there's, an, you know, for me, a personal interest in sort of learning more about what's going on over in Western Pennsylvania and the legacy of these mines. Um, and also whether or not there's um, a story to be told that has um, a hopeful quality to it that might allow us to, you know, see a future that, could have, you know, future without the coal industry, but where people who are engaged with the coal industry might see themselves in that future. And so that's, that's kind of where I got interested. And as you know, AMD is a pretty prevalent problem, particularly in, in the southwestern part of the state. And you mentioned that, you know, FPW is working on several sites and, and has more in their sites, I guess. Why the little Kanama? What drew you to this particular area? And what is interesting historically about this river? What's the broader significance for you? Well, I mean, I, I didn't honestly know anything about the Little Kanama when I first got involved in this story. Uh, I knew about it only because it was, you know, the site of, of the Super 7 or, or, you know, it was the river that FPW, Foundation for Pennsylvania Watersheds, is focused on addressing. And so I started with that. And, and as I visited Johnstown in the, in the nearby area, I... Um, I mean, quickly, what I realized was that this was the site and the Little Kanama was the site of what of this famous moment, um, really kind of tragic moment in history uh, of the Great Johnstown Flood, when a dam, an earthen dam collapsed and sent, you know, this wall of water just careening down, which destroyed uh, the city of Johnstown, which at the time was this a, a steel town that rivaled Pittsburgh. And so, you know, I kind of like very quickly read or listened to the book by Robert McCullough on my way back and forth and realized that uh, this area had a history that ran deep, both with, you know, events like this with tragedy, but also, you know, with this really important moment in time, a century or so, a little more than that of, you know, this really key uh, industry. So, I mean, I just, I got taken by, by the history of the river and the area and you know, I think I say it in the, it was in the writing and in the film, but just the idea that like there was this, it's a tragic history, but it's also um, with the coal industry, you know, in the steel industry. Uh, I mean, these drove industrial development in this country for a long time. And so, you know, I felt it was really important to respect that because I think a lot of times that that's what one of the things that complicates the conversation quite a bit 
when we talk about, you know, the coal industry and, and, you know, just in general, moving off fossil fuels is like, there is a history there that people, this is deep in their families and that just like people are very proud of. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of reflect that, but also kind of point out that there are other futures, right? So that's, that's kind of where I started from in terms of my interest in exploring the subject. And then, you know, the more I met people, you know, everybody I met had connections to the, in, to the coal industry or the steel industry, even the people who were most sort of adamant about there being a new path forward, they, they also had, you know, deep family history and connections. So uh, it just, it's just woven into the fabric of the communities. Let's look at the Little Kanama itself. And I mean, for those who don't know the area or haven't seen your film yet, what's wrong with the river? How did it get that way? You alluded to the industrial past. What specifically are we talking about here? So before 19, I'll say before the Clean Water Act was passed, you could have a mine. And when you were done mining it, you could just walk away from it. Um, I mean, you might, you might close it up, but essentially there was no you know, requirement for you to do any sort of uh, remediation or, or anything really at all to prevent that mine from becoming a source of pollution. And so, um, you know, over the course of 100 plus years of mining, uh, a lot of these mines were just left as like zombie mines, essentially. And even, you know, the DEP is still not sure about where so many, you know, thousands of mines are across the state. And so basically you have this like underground web of holes that were drilled into the earth and when you know when these holes were drilled uh people the 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 metals and, and other materials that were left behind began to leach into rainwater that filled up these holes in the ground and so over time these these toxic metals the toxic to you know animals and plants and things like that began to basically create a slurry with these with these the rainwater that filled the mines. And as that, as those mines filled up, they either, either overflow or the water escapes through fissures in the rock. And um, that water then goes into streams and rivers. And when it does that, uh, it, the, the metals that are in that water then really, you know, dramatically shift the pH and, and just the, you know, the overall quality of water in those streams and rivers. And so all of a sudden now you have essentially these just like never ending sources of pollution that are draining into the rivers and streams of the region. And, and so uh, in a lot of cases, when those pollutant levels are high enough, they just wipe out the food chain in, in the river from the bottom up, you know, from the macroinvertebrates and the and insects, which then make it impossible for fish to live and so on and so forth. And so, you know, in some cases you see uh, this, this very dramatic orange color or yellow color, um, people call them the yellow boys, uh, that was one of the nicknames for the rivers. Um, and that's, you know, those, that's a particular kind of um, chemical reaction, but, you know, it's, that's in some ways, I think that's actually kind of a helpful uh, signature because it, it's very easy to see, right? A lot of times a river can be polluted and you can't see that at all. It's just, it's running clear, but, um, yeah. So anyway, so you have these markers sometimes that, that indicate and tell you like, wow, this is a really sick river. Right? Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's that's in, in short, that's the problem. You've just got these accumulated metals just leaching into rivers and streams. And the challenge is how do you figure out how to stop that? Right. And so and the solution is sort of multifaceted, obviously, you know, it's it's a it's social and political at some level. It's about rallying a community. 
Um, it's also technological, right? So like what, it, what in practical concrete terms, what had to happen to, you know, address this, this problem with the river? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the technology, I think, you know, at this point it's actually, you know, it's, it's a, not, not a, um, sort of a high tech solution, but what it is, is in certain search situations, if you have the right conditions and if the, uh, pollute the, the metal load is, is not, you know, in the volume of water is not tremendous. You can create essentially like a retaining pond. And in that pond, you basically run that water into that pond. And in that pond, you treat the water and then you release the water, uh, into, it's like, uh, into the stream to rivers. That's called a passive solution. Right. And then when you have like the super seven, which, or, uh, which is what the nickname for the seven largest discharges on the little Kahnemaw, um, that's the super seven are, are super, they're too big. And so there's too much volume coming out of them for a retention pond or a passive solution. So in that case, you have to build um, basically a, a large water treatment plant, which is, you know, we're probably familiar with seeing them at different points in our lives. They look like, in, you know, enormous kiddie pools or like kiddie pools for giants. You know, they're just like these huge round um, pools of water that are treated with, you know, a, a set of neutralizing agents to, or, you know, whatever, whatever needs to happen to that water in particular, whatever chemicals are in there, metals, um, you treat that water and then you release it back into the stream uh, or the river. And so until we find a way to manage these, these mines, which I don't think we, I don't, unless I'm mistaken, we don't really have any technology yet that will allow us to go and scrub them out or neutralize the mines themselves or bottle them up. Uh, we're going to have, you have to keep treating this runoff in perpetuity. So, you know, these streams are only healthy as long as you keep running these, uh, you know, these treatment plants, um, or maybe at some point, you know, the mines exhaust the, the available metal that metals that are in the rock and, and they become neutral or so, but yeah. And that's where the social and political challenge is because it's expensive. Um, and so there has to be a shared understanding of the value of making these investments. And, and that's why that's, you know, and that's where storytelling comes in, whether it's, you know, on the part of um, people like you or, or people like me, just letting, letting people understand, you know, what's, what's possible. Uh, and I think that's, that to me is what I felt like I needed to do here because I think people understandably got really used to um, these rivers being, uh, you know, essentially like not assets, but a curse uh, at this point. Um, and so figuring out how to change a few generations of, um, you know, sort of like inherited knowledge or understanding of these rivers, instead of them being eyesores and people planting shrubs in front of their riverfront to, you know, block the vision of that yellow water. Now it's like, well, you know, let's, let's think about what actually this could be and could mean for for the people of this region, both economically, recreationally, and, and just for, you know, everyone's sort of like pride and mental health. I definitely want to get back to that, but I also want to follow up uh, first on the storytelling theme. And you were talking earlier about how important it is to put a human face on these stories, make them real, make them relatable for audiences. And you've got some great characters in this film. Can you tell us about some of the folks who, who you spoke to, how you found them, why you chose them to feature? Sure. Well, it starts with uh, Rick, who's a fisherman, and he was somebody that I met um, at the Ben's Creek Canoe Club, their annual gathering. And he was there 
giving people tours on his rubber boats. Um, I actually spent better part of a day chasing one of his boats down the river and, and locating it after it, it got away. He was, you know, somebody who grew up in the area and worked there his whole life and was a fisherman, a pretty like, you know, hardcore recreational fisherman. But he spent, as he puts it, like all of his retirement funds traveling around the world before he retired uh, to go fishing in places because he, he just didn't consider the area, you know, that he grew up in to be a place where he could really do serious fishing. And so, you know, as he's gotten older, the not, you know, not the Little Kahnemaw, but the Stony Creek has had some work done that's, that's brought the Stony Creek back, uh, or at least like large parts of it to a place where trap, you know, fish are now running again. And so he has this just kind of a great story about the fact that, you know, now that he's run out of money and, and retired, he doesn't have to travel the world anymore because he can actually fish the rivers that, you know, he calls home. You could paint your car with the creek when I was a child, sitting down in the porch listening to my grandfather's stories. And the orange in the sky and the orange dust on everything and there was no fish and it smelled. From something that I thought would never, ever, ever support life again and was a shame and a waste, it's now got fish in it. I can take my grandkids swimming in it. I can find a crawdad in it. I never thought I'd be able to see this river fishable again. So, you know, that's exactly the kind of story that I think is, is so important. And I think also, you know, there are a lot of people I met a lot of people even just in the short time I was there who were, you know, visiting rivers and streams and just talking about how important it is to them to be able to just take an hour out of the day and go walk or spend some time on those streams and, and in those rivers for their mental health, for their sanity uh, and so forth. And so, yeah. And then, you know, other folks I met, Chad Gonkovic is um, this really <laughs> kind of amazing high energy entrepreneurial character who started a company called Cole Tubin, which was modeled after an outfit that he saw when he was in Texas. And what they do, what his vision was, which was kind of a crazy idea at the time, was to turn the river, uh, Little Kanama eventually, but the Stony Creek at first, into like a, a place where you could bring people in to go inner tubing, you know, hang out, tube down the river, um, stop in Johnstown, you know, go to a, a restaurant or a bar. Like he saw this vision of the future that I think almost, you know, was, was unbelievable or even unfathomable to other people. Uh, and, and he just, he and his wife worked to make that vision a reality and, and, you know, they're, they're going strong. Um, and he has, he has other ideas which seem even more wild uh, than that about, you know, how to build up the recreational uh, potential of the area, both as an economic driver and also just as like a, you know, reason he, he lives there and wants to, you know, enjoy the place that he lives and, and sees, sees that in his friends and family and everybody else too. They just want to make, you know, they want to take advantage of the incredible natural beauty of the area. Um, and then, you know, there's Mike Cook, who's the uh, president of, of the Ben's New Club, um, who also has this vision for recreation, which in his case involves other paddling, uh, you know, activities on the river, kayaking, canoeing. And um, he also was like somebody who goes and cuts, uh, you know, uh, goes and cuts trails for mountain bikes, mountain biking, and does a lot of mountain biking. And so, you know, you can start to see the constellation of 
activities that the area can provide. And, and of course, not everybody is in it for the recreational activities, but they start to suggest like a future with, with industry that um, can kind of be built up around those, uh, the, you know, those activities as well. And, and then there's, you know, Jackie Ritko, who's also from the area, also has like deep family ties to coal and steel, um, who is at the uh, Cambria County Conservation District. And she basically like spends almost all of her time working in spare time, uh, you know, just like bringing people around, touring them around and showing them what the river has to offer, you know, and, and like educating children about the what macroinvertebrae are and how to find them and why they're so important for, for the health of the river. And, you know, her idea is like to try to get the next generation of kids to value and appreciate, um, you know, what it means, why it's important to have a clean river. And so that when they become decision makers and voters, they can advocate for those things themselves. It's really cool how Outdoor Rec really is at the center of this story in so many ways and how it comes full circle with with Rick and his journeys around the world, uh, right back in southwestern PA, and and the vision of a local economy that's not driven by industry in the way that it was, but instead by outdoor recreation. I'm curious, how replicable is that model, do you think? Is outdoor recreation the answer for a lot of communities, or is Johnstown special in that way? I mean, I don't think it's a it's not a cookie cutter solution for sure. I don't think even for Johnstown that recreation is necessarily the solution. Um, I think that it's, it's an indicator and it's, and it's, you know, an, an, a hopeful, you know, leading indicator maybe of, of where the area could go. And I think it's a way of also attracting younger, more sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, sort of like upwardly mobile people who like want to have some of those resources around them and will relocate perhaps to a place like Johnstown or the area because it has those opportunities. And I think, of course, perhaps, you know, of all the difficult things that we've gone through in the last couple of years with the pandemic, one thing that it has done is made it so that people can be much more mobile in the places that they live and work. And so, you know, for places like Johnstown or other places, say in the mountains of you know, Kentucky or West Virginia or other places, you know, you might have some proximity to a city like Pittsburgh or, or other cities, medium, small to medium cities, um, which might allow you to live a couple hours outside and put yourself in a place where there are, there's the kind of lifestyle that you really want to, you know, that you want to enjoy and live. And so, you know, I think that with that kind of a influx of energy um, and not just people moving there, but people who grew up there who might want, might really appreciate those things and not want to have to move to, you know, a big city somewhere to work and live, like does create some of those opportunities to, to really turn those communities into places that um, not turn them into anything, but just really actually like uh, take advantage of, of all of the resources and the natural beauty of some of these communities. So, you know, I can't say that about every community where the coal industry was, was prominent, but I think you might find a lot of them happen to be in places that are actually quite rich in natural beauty. Um, and so, so yeah, that's a long winded way of, of saying that I don't think recreation is actually the, in and of itself, the salvation, but I do think that it can be a big part of, um, you know, what, what, communities can leverage to really like turn turn things around and and take advantage of, of what's there to begin with 
it, it's important. This is not a story of, you know, tree hugging exurban types showing up and, and fixing this problem. Like it, it's key, it seems that everybody in the community in some way or another has a relationship with the river, has a relationship, whether it's through the outdoor economy or just the quality of life that having access to those assets brings and so on. But this is a theme of the, of the film that we live in this really seemingly polarized culture right now. How do you get people from different walks of life, different points of view, ideological or otherwise, to come together around something like this? Well, I mean, I, I think we have retreated into a, a period of, of, of intense tribalism, and that does extend to a large extent to the differences people see between urban and, and rural communities and perceived differences. But, you know, I think that the reality is that, like, those differences are, we all want the same things, right? We all want to have a future that's better than the past, or, or at least as good as the present, depending on where or, you know, what you see and perceive your own situation to be. And so, you know, I think that that was, that's, that's what I was looking for in this story is like, well, what are the values that people have who live in the community here? What are they looking for? What do they want? You know, I'm not suggesting that I like, I'm, and that's why I'm careful. Like I'm not sort of prescribing that there's some, there's some economy or that anyone even really wants to work in the recreational economy. But, you know, I think that like, we're all kind of downstream from one another in one way or another. And so, you know, if you're in Johnstown, you're needing to find, and you want to stay there, like you have to find a way to make yourself a living and also to satisfy the things that are important to you in terms of like the place that you live and your family and everything else. And so, I mean, I guess this isn't really a great answer to your question because I don't really think there is like a, a, a solution to that but i do think that communication and understanding and you know empathy is is really important and that's partly why i wanted to make this film and partly why i wanted it to screen in in the johnstown area but also like in philadelphia because i think that we all have like i said at the beginning um you know different ideas about the coal industry for instance in a city like philadelphia it means something very different coal country right it means something very different in philadelphia than in uh, Johnstown, for instance, and until we can see each other as, you know, just people living our lives instead of, you know, stereotypes of one thing or another, you know, we're not going to be able to understand the complicated solutions to some of these problems. We, we have to like put aside our ideas about other people, like every once in a while, and just try to understand that we're all born into different situations and, you know, we all kind of want the same things more or less, but it is different. Like there's, these are just different communities, you, you know, and you grow up in the world you grow up in and, and you don't want to be told by other people what to do with yourself. Right. So it's like, what can we do? We can help support legislation that will provide resources to places to, you know, address the big problems that were created in an, in an effort to try to, you know, both earn a living, but also in an industry that was about taking this whole country and lifting it up. I mean, coal is what got America to the status that it got to in the world. And I mean, I think you can even look at that these days. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of like hand waving, finger wagging at countries that are using coal now, like India and China and you know complaints about their need to shift off of coal and, and well yes absolutely they have to shift off of coal like you can't just forget that like it's it's 
used for a reason it's it's very cheap it's very high energy load and so like that's what lifts people out of poverty and you know that story is really important it's a difficult story i think for people who are considered themselves sort of environmentalists and forward-looking in terms of energy to, to absorb and to think about but like that's also the story of johnstown that this community is one of the many communities in this country that helped this country become what it is, right? And so you can't just kind of say thanks for that and see you later, you know, it's like, well, what, okay, so now it's our job to help, you know, part of the collateral damage of that is still, is, is there and very present, you know, besides the climate change, which is, of course, a whole other issue that we all have to deal with, so... And it's it's fascinating how the the film actually makes a point of the way in which the coal industry actually kind of becomes part of this renaissance, right? In some sense, like there is a, a body of knowledge and expertise that's available in coal country, right? That can be put to work on projects like these. Yeah. No, I mean, I, again, like, I don't know that that's like a, a solution for people who've lost their jobs in mining, but I mean, certainly if there was money available to address these problems, you could put a lot of people to work for a long time <laughs> trying to fix some of these problems. And, you know, may, there may be some money, maybe. There's a lot of uh, federal funding coming down the pike yep. for this work. I mean, we can print money for one thing. We can print it for another, right? Like, it just depends on what our values are. You mentioned climate change just now, and I know that's something you've addressed a lot in your work. In some ways, you know, everything comes back to climate. So maybe this is redundant, but I guess I am curious how you think about the way that climate connects with this story with Johnstown. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really address that in the film and then and kind of deliberately. You know, I think that like the politics of climate change are 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 tricky. And in this case, like they're not entirely relevant to the problem at hand. It's more about the background of this story. To me, one of the big questions with climate change is, you know, equity, equitable solutions and, and climate justice. And I think oftentimes when we think about equity and we think about climate change and who it's affecting, you know, we think about understandably, you know, island nations, uh, poor nations, the developing world, places where people don't have the ability to adapt and move to do the things that climate change requires us to do. But I think also you could, like I was sort of hinting at earlier, you could, I think you could really see specifically in terms of environmental justice, but also in terms of climate justice. I mean, this community in these communities were instrumental in building up you know, the economies in the industrial economies of our nation and, and of the world. And, and the legacy of that is, is up in the atmosphere now, right? Like it's, it's that carbon dioxide that's released from the coal that was mined and, and shipped out from these communities is, is still in the atmosphere. The carbon is, is just, it's no longer in the ground, it's up in the air. And so, you know, it, you know, you could think about a lot of different ways in which this, this community was mined and those resources were taken out of it. And, and, you know, there's no legacy fund to support the people there to adapt to whatever climate irregularities or problems they have down the road. But there certainly could be a role for that community to play in, in a number of potential solutions, whether they have to do with, you know, reforestation or other kinds of um you know, land base or agricultural carbon sequestration, or even, you know, if you want to look at manufacturing, you could, you know, people talking about like direct air capture and, and carbon capture technologies. And, you know, there's a lot of ways in which these communities could be 
invested in to help deal with the lingering effects of climate in ways that would be generative to the people in those communities as well. So it's maybe a little Pollyanna-ish, but you know, I do think that there those those kinds of solutions we're gonna have to, every community is gonna have to engage um, if we're going to try to tackle both the you know transition away from fossil fuels, but also dealing with the legacy of what's up in the atmosphere, because you know it's going to take a lot to get that carbon back down again to regulate the climate, and there's no reason why these communities can't be a big part of that as well. They've got they've got the one thing that a lot of places don't have, which is land, and that's that's one of the key limiters on you know the ability to capture carbon in, in, in almost any of the solutions that we we think about or the approaches so uh, summing it all up what are your takeaways from this project what do you hope audiences will, will get out of the film if people get anything out of the film it's that even really complicated problems have solutions when people can share a vision for the future and I think that that's really what's important is finding people who have a positive vision and the energy and the belief that, you know, you just move in that direction and, and eventually things will change. I mean, even some of these really seemingly intractable issues in this region that I think people had understandably just given up on, uh, given up on the rivers, given up on the gi giant piles of uh, bony from leftover tailings from the coal mine, you know, like these massive smoldering piles of coal, they can be fixed, they can be addressed, they're not intractable, but it does take a lot of imagination and creativity and just like perseverance to move the ball. Um, and so, you know, I think whether it's dealing with these particular issues or just honestly dealing with climate change itself, you know, you gotta start somewhere and you gotta start from a shared set of values and shared vision you know? and that's and i think that's maybe the biggest lesson in terms of looking at environmental problems overall because they are and they feel massive you know and way beyond what any one person can do and so it's just all the more reason why we have to try to find places of, of commonality because that's that's how we're going to move forward well ben kalina with uh, mangrove media maker of a river reborn Thanks for being on Pennsylvania Legacies today. It was great talking with you. Yeah, you too, Josh. Thanks for having me. Ben Kalina, Philadelphia-based filmmaker and director of A River Reborn, which you can see in person at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival on tour later this month in Ligonier at the Loyal Hannah Watershed Association. We'll have details about how you can attend either a virtual or in-person screening of the film and others on offer as part of the film festival, the second year that Pennsylvania Organization for Watersheds and Rivers, or POWER, is sponsoring that event. Hope you can join us. Find all the information about the film festival and uh, other information on the topics we discussed here via links on the website, pecpa.org with show notes for this podcast episode. Again, it's on the PEC website, pecpa.org. Org. Thanks for listening to Pennsylvania Legacies. We release new episodes every other Friday and hope you can join us for the next one. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.